You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years or of. It's coming. First, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. And now, Emeritus Rex. 40 years old. This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko. And let me just announce, Meirosh, so to speak, that uh, as we are careening into the Pesach season, this will be our last program for a couple of weeks, especially as the extreme busy nature that Rabbi Pupko as other rabbis have. We'll save that for the end of the show. Let's talk about the, the big headline news. Uh, Trump tweets out a couple of days ago, I think it was on Sunday or Saturday night, um, big news, I'm going to be arrested. Um, it's so terrible. It's so corrupt. Uh, the, the New York DA that was uh, that he was only a straw man that was hired by George Soros, um, and they're going to arrest me. Look how terrible this is. Let's protest, protest, protest. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's really milking this quite a bit, isn't he, Rabbi? Oh yes. Uh, listen, um, you know the, the, there are several court cases that are confronting Trump. It seems that the most imminent uh, possible indictment is from the New York DA, a case that his predecessor uh, Cyrus Vance had uh, declined to prosecute. I think they called it the zombie case. I think they right. called it the zombie exactly because it was just always in the office but never completely dead. So he, he apparently, listen, the critics of the DA's office will tell you that there was enormous political pressure by Democratic partisans to uh, uh, to pursue this case. It is an unusual case. It's about falsifying business records, which is linked to another crime. Now, most legal uh, opinions believe that the crime it can be, has to be linked to is a state crime. The problem is the the crime they want to do, they, they want to break new ground, is to charge them with a federal crime, to only get to a federal crime, which is an election uh, a crime. So it's very complicated. It's breaking new ground. It's possible the judge will dismiss an indictment because it is such an untenuous ground. That it's about hush money being paid to Stormy Daniels. Yes. Yes. And, and somehow when you pay hush money to someone uh, to not upset your uh, reputation or campaign, that somehow is going to be construed as uh, a violation of the federal election laws because the monies that you, that check that you send out was supposed to be only for 
uh, election purposes or something, right? Right. Uh, listen, uh, you, your trenchant comment could not be more timely because the other issue here is, was the payoff to Stormy Daniels in any way connected to the campaign? Trump could legitimately claim the payoff had nothing to do with the campaign. It was to spare himself and his family embarrassment. And it wasn't connected to the campaign. I mean, this gets involved in that old case with John Edwards a little bit. Sure. But, but so it, and I think right. Edwards, I think Edwards paid close to a million dollars. Right. And right. this certainly listen, here's what's here's what I think is sad about this. Is that he he paid hush money to uh she was apparently an actress in uh, adult films. And what's disturbing about this is that the Republican Party that used to talk about values, you know, and family values, right, and character, they're all caught up in the legalism of whether or not the payoff was for campaign or not, and they're not outraged by the the incident itself. I mean, you had the uh, Access Hollywood tape, which didn't it causes you know his followers to abandon him. He has a long history of you know, low fidelity with high frequency uh, with, with his marriages. And now this payoff to a uh, uh, to Stormy Daniels, you'd think the outrage wouldn't be about whether technically it's a campaign contribution violation, a falsifying business records violation. You'd think the outrage would be about the act itself, but somehow, right, they're talking we're, about- We're past that. That ship has sailed, especially about Trump. And you're right, John Edwards, uh, uh, in 2008, wanted to be president. I don't know if he had any chance, but the idea that he would be cheating on his dying wife uh, with some woman was somehow so shocking that I mean, it was only Gary Hart. I forget his his you know what, what, what the name of the other person there, but the yeah. Gary Hart thing on the boat, the picture on the boat that doomed Gary. Right. Hart. So th- that really shows you again, Rabbi, how morality and how what we accept has changed completely. A serial adulterer, um, uh, and again, and, and the question is, is that's not a problem. I think it's a combination of two things. I still think egregious moral violations in many places in the U.S. would still be disqualifying. It would even trigger resignations, but I think the combination of the diminished, more you know, morality in society, in addition to this unique unique character of Trump, right? Uh, yeah. Remember what Trump said during the first campaign: "I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and still win." Right? Yes. So he, you know, he enjoys a degree of impunity, which is which is quite remarkable. I think, you know, as both of us have been witness to this sea change and what people have tolerance for, I think what they won't have tolerance for is uh, something similar to what Bill Clinton was involved in. In other words, right. Where, where <laughs> let me just explain it. The dynamism where you are taking advantage of someone, where you are abusing or using your power, that's verboten. The idea of a consensual affair where, hey, I'll get you on to the uh, Apprentice show. Meanwhile, I'm living with a supermodel as well, but I'm going to have you as that. Yeah, okay, we can take that. That you can still well, kind of- I would also, however, remind you that even during Clinton, when this thing came out, there were many feminists who defended him or didn't turn on him. Right, because he was their guy, right? Remember the similar time you had Bob Packwood who got railroaded out of office because of some incident in an elevator and Clinton got immunity. And what right-wing critics of that dynamic 
claimed was you're pro-abortion, you get immunity on, 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 on sex crimes. He was their guy. There was even one feminist who said something quite crass, which I can't repeat because this is a family show. I uh, said, you know, basically, you know, with Clinton, you know, you know, it's all right. They, they found him charming. I would also suggest, because I'm a paranoid Jew, that had Monica Lewinsky been a black girl, it would have been very different. No one had Rachmanis on a rich Jew, what they saw as a rich Jewish kid from Beverly Hills. No one saw her as a victim because she was Jewish. And, and it was different. In other words, had she been a poor girl from, white girl from Arkansas or, or a black girl from uh, Detroit, you know, it, it would have been, uh, it, it been very different. Yeah, it could be. I, I would, as, as we say, we, we, we tolerate uh, a lot more vulgarity today, uh, but we've become super sensitive because of the Me Too movement. We've become super sensitive to uh, abuse, especially you know, scandals in the Catholic Church. So uh, I think that's that would that would root that would shoot down anybody's campaign. But yeah, Trump as a, a, a serial adulterer, as somebody that that doesn't that wouldn't be the issue anymore. It's surprising, you know. You think about it, Trump would probably uh, wish he had never. Uh, paid that hush money because it probably wouldn't have. But it was the speech. second hush money. The first hush money was actually paid by his buddy Packer at National Enquirer on a catch and kill maneuver. It was the second payoff. Mm-hmm. Um, catch and kill is where you you know you you, you pay the, the the accuser off before they say anything, and that was done by his buddy who ran the National Enquirer at the time. But, um, but this know, before we move away from this, you know, I, I think our our Gentile friends are probably scanning the names here and they see Cohen and Weisselberger, right? <laughs> Isn't it, d- d- aren't you embarrassed about that as well? That there's so many- oh, here's what I would say about that. I think that the idea of a Chil Hashem is probably at this point an anachronism because uh, of Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein. Right, and yes. That, that goes on, uh, unfortunately, uh, by our people. The uh, uh, Hashem is based on the expectation of good behavior and it being disappointed. I think we've debunked the expectation, so I'm not sure it is any longer possible to make a Hashem. Yeah, I, I would just I, I would say the nod probably occurs, the the knowing nod of recognition. Oh, there's Cohen. Oh, there's uh, there's Weisselberger. And yeah, all I, I, honestly, I you know they just did a Pew report where generally speaking, Americans love Jews and. It's the most popular religion, despite all the anti. In other words, the broad middle of America still likes us. The extremists are getting more intense and energized by a lot of factors. Uh, the Georgia case, the Washington cases are, are much, are, are much, are, are much more solid legal ground here. I mean, the tampering with the, the attempt to pressure Georgian uh, election officials, the mishandling of. Uh, of, of confidential documents in Washington. and But I'll tell you, I mean, Trump has enormous muzzle. The fact that within weeks of the Trump story about confidential documents hitting the media, you had a story of Biden doing the same thing. And so, you know, so that has really, in many ways, immunized Trump against, I think, any kind of prosecution for the documents. And, and he, as it's clear, he wants to be arrested. He wants there to be this scene. And he wants all the the, the stated Republican candidates. Right, which gets to the next part of the question, which yeah. is, if you want to destroy the Republican Party and guarantee a Biden victory in 2024, um, an indictment might be the best thing. What I mean by that is uh, the indictment only makes him a hero. 
it forces anti-Trump Republicans into an awkward position of having to criticize the DA. They have to because the DA really, in, in New York at least, is overstepping. And, and you know, and, and, and Trump becomes a hero to the Republican base as being a persecute as being persecuted by a politically driven prosecution. And it makes it more likely he'll be the Republican nominee. And if he's the Republican nominee, he will for sure lose. He cannot win a national election. He's, you know that. So the Democrat, now I'm not telling you Bragg is, is going to indict Trump because he has this convoluted plot to make sure Trump gets more popular and gets the nomination. He's doing it simply to respond to his partisan base. But the reality is the effect of this is to elevate Trump in Republican, in, in Republican eyes, not to diminish him. I, I think, you know, when DeSantis finally, although he's not even a declared candidate, he's just the governor of Florida, needed to respond to it, I was very impressed by what DeSantis said. Yes. DeSantis pointed out the anomaly of going after this hush money payment, and yet, so shoplifting is okay, right? Um, uh, breaking- oh, for sure, right. A Democratic, the Democratic prosecutors across the country have sat by, have refused to, you know, uh, go after uh, crime, sometimes much more serious than shoplifting. Yes, yes, but... Right. And, uh, and, and they're getting killed. Look what happened to the mayor of Chicago. Look what happened to the recall of the San Francisco DA in Budin. Uh, so, we, you know, it's, they're... they're uh, so I think DeSantis did a good job of highlighting that without necessarily saying, uh, how dare they touch a, uh, a former president? Uh, so I... Look, you know, and, and, and even hearing DeSantis talk, despite the tinny sound of his voice, he doesn't exactly sound like, um, you know, like Walter Cronkite, but he's, he, he can put sentences together uh, in an intelligent fashion. And uh, if people can't see that as a contrast to Trump with his, you know, all capital tweets. The problem is that in order for a Republican nom- a candidate uh, to beat Trump in the uh, in the primaries, you have to have somebody who can go after Trump in a, in a direct fashion without the, you know, so, you know, adolescent antics of Trump to go after him seriously. But the problem is the prosecution makes that much more difficult. Yes, yes, because, right. I, I just want to note before we move on that Trump, when he heard about DeSantis's sort of lukewarm defense of him, decided that he needed to say, but I can't believe the governor's not worried that they're going to go after him too. Right, right. Some of his peccadilloes about how he was involved in underage drinking with some of his students. No, nobody is more insane than this man. I, it's it's really incredible. It's incredible. You know, you you have to give him you have to give him something as uh, for a, a man in his in his late seventies. He's his 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 febrile brain is quite active. You know, yeah. quite quite crazy. Um, so again, so you're right. Trump's muzzle will could rebound the negative muzzle for us, Rabbi. Um, you know, this is emeritus Rex. You are the great Rabbi. You've had so much experience. Uh, talk a little bit. Let's move into the uh, to the world of, of 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 the world that you have swam in so magnificently. All those laps that you've accomplished. Um, <laughs> I got my metaphors going, but but now look, it's 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 two weeks before Pesach. Um, what's the major thing that's draining your time now? Uh, chia seeds. I'm getting a lot of calls about chia seeds. What is that? I have no idea. <laughs> All I know is it's not, it's not on the list of kidneys that I'm aware of. <laughs> chia, 
And that's basically, it's all about, can I have this for Pesach? It's Kashra's questions. Yeah, a lot of Kashra's questions, preparing kitchen questions. Uh, but also, it's a lot of, you know, as you know, I, I'm a very elderly man. I'm, I'm you know... Mummified. They're ready to mummify you already. I, I, I'm very old, and I'm a bitter man also. I don't know if you know this about me. I'm bitter. I'm cynical. Uh, Maybe we could call you bittersweet. Bittersweet. <laughs> Like the chalk, like like, I, like honestly, I can't understand some of the questions I get because the whole holiday, if I remember correctly, is only eight days long, and you know there are very few things you can't live without for eight days. Chia seeds being one of them, quinoa being another one. I mean, no one knew quinoa was a food till ten years ago, for God's sakes. I mean, it's you know, I mean, you know, I don't know why we need all these questions. What's wrong with the you know you got a piece of chicken, right? You want to get a, a potato? Uh, what else do you need? All right, so you make a brisket, a little chicken soup, a little gefilte fish. You want milkshakes, make yourself some matzo brai, matzo so, pizza, so, right? So when you get these questions, do you have the handbooks of all the major organizations at your fingertips? About 99%, I remember from last year. But uh, yeah, no, I have, the you know, yeah, if I have to look up a new kidney, it's, Thing. I, I just I just Google it. Absolutely. I don't know why they can't. I just yeah. Google the list. Um, but um, there's something about the abdicating responsibility. Right. You know, I, I just Google. I look, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I look at the list. But it's uh, listen, kidneys is a daunting challenge for us Ashkenazic Jews who are uh, captive of, uh, of this practice. Um, but the. Um, uh, but again, uh, some of the questions, honestly, I don't, if, people ask me about microwaves. Now, how many days can you use a microwave anyway? You can't use it for at least five days, right? Because it's it, it's electric, right? And there's only eight days of Yontif, four of which are Yontif, one of them is Shabbos Chalamite. So we're talking about three days. It, why is it that people can't live without a microwave for three days? Um, I have to tell you, by the way, your uncle, a blessed memory, Rabbi Dalia Schwartz, um, had a very lenient opinion about kashering microwaves. Um, but there are, as you know, as, as, as the rabbi that you are, that there are people who are adamantly against it and feel that it can't. But work. also, my other question is, if you really need it, they actually sell $49 yes. microwaves at Walmart. That's right, right. You can get one. I right. mean, isn't it easier to buy a $49 microwave than to go ahead and kosher it? I mean, that's what I don't. So, again, so I don't understand. I hate, I hope people are listening. I'm getting very angry about this, but I don't understand the question about microwaves. I don't get it. It's $49. I'd rather give the person asking me $49 than have to explain it. <laughs> you might be getting a lot of calls now for $49. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, it's mostly... What did Rabbi Schwartz say about the microwave? Rabbi Schwartz said that you clean it out very... Uh, right, did you put a glass thoroughly, of water Using the somewhat of an abrasive detergent. He said that the generally the microwaves come with a... Uh, a, I guess, a Corel plate. Right. He says those cannot be kashered. Those cannot be kashered. Uh, just like all China ware can be kashered. But you take that out. And he says, basically, after it's clean totally, you boil water in it. And once you boil water, voila, it's clean and you have your Pesach microwave. So I don't think that's $49 worth of work. No. All right. But still, but you could, first of all, with the plate, I'm not sure there's a serious problem in covering it with with hard cardboard. I see. 
you know, because if you need the plate to go around, I don't know if people want to use a stationary microwave. Uh, they need to have those gamma rays, uh, like belting them right. at various angles. I, I think if you, by the way, are we ready? Aren't we ready to jettison the microwave? I mean, nothing really gets cooked properly in the microwave anyway, right? I, I'll tell you, the only thing it's really good for though is is heating up macaroni and cheese from the night before. I see. I see. Yeah. Um, no, if you if you if you irradiate a uh, a potato dish sufficiently, it actually turns into a kugel. <laughs> I see. Yes, you can. Then you can, and what's left over, you can like smear on your face. <laughs> I think it could shield you from some of the uh, UV yeah. rays that might uh, start coming. Um, it was a very it was a very uh, light winter this year, even for you guys up in Montreal. Um, but I think uh, spring is, is, has arrived, and although America's pastime is here, but it's not America's pastime, is it? Really. Uh, what's I happened is especially... Numbers. Uh, baseball viewership has dropped, I think, 20% or something in the last 15 years or so. So baseball trying to make themselves more popular. They put in this uh, the clock on the pitcher, how many seconds the pitcher can wait between pitches. Uh, they, they banned the shift, which was hurting uh, scoring. They have this stupid rule about extra innings putting a ghost runner on second base. Um, but uh, they're trying to speed up the game, which they should have done a while ago. Uh, I think the stop, I think the clock on a pitcher makes a lot of sense. Some of these guys were just out there meditating. Uh, you know, it could drive you crazy. Uh, listen, you and I grew up in a different age. We have a much longer uh, attention span. But, you know, compared, you know, compared to basketball, it's a problem. You so, know? so let's talk a little bit about what happened, I guess, in 2006. They came up with this idea of the World Baseball Classic that I think was supposed to happen, sort of like a World Cup of baseball. Right. And, and and let's just give a little history for people that don't realize it. World War II meant the hegemony of the United States. And as we basically decided to build back these nations like Germany and Japan, um, we did it in a very benevolent way. It was only 10 years after we dropped the bomb on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki that we were importing all of the transistor radios and everything that Japan had to offer. But we also, with our uh, police force and our uh, military, we taught them the game that was so beloved for those post-World War II veterans was baseball. And not only did they learn the game, which isn't exactly as complex as anything they had learned in elementary school, but they thrived in the game. And you have, from the early 1950s into uh, into even the period that we were uh, teenagers, yeah. you have the, you have the rise of Japanese baseball players to the point that I think a case can be made, especially in in the game that was just played, where uh, Shohei Otani, uh, who is supposedly he's Babe Ruth, but without the without the beer belly, right? He's somebody who who can pitch like a demon, and can also smack a home run anytime he's at the plate. When I, when I watch him play, I have to say, it's like looking in a mirror. It reminds me of myself as a young man. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, I, sometimes show, and sometimes the sumo wrestlers. In Japan. <laughs> yeah, I think they also. No, so last night, what happened? The two guys on the same team in, the, in, in American baseball, right? The, the, the pitcher you mentioned and uh, Mike oh, Trout. And Mike Trout. Mike Trout represents USA. Right. And I, I, it was interesting. He was by the, on the Japanese team, and he struck out his teammate. They're, they play together on the a, bottom. Of the, I think it was at the bottom of the ninth. Basically. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the uh, or top of the ninth when it was the edge of the game. 
Um, and it was, uh, they play for a team called the Los Angeles Angels, which I'm opposed to its very existence. because California Angels. Oh, no, they call themselves the Los Angeles Angels. Oh, they call them Los Angeles Angels. That's sort of like redundant. They call themselves the Los Angeles Angels. Los Angeles Angels. Right. So, um, so that's a little strange. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so, uh, listen, I think it's very apt you brought this up. Because people are talking about the 20th anniversary of the American invasion of Iraq. You know, part of the story that people forget is that uh, all of us, human nature, is we are at our worst after we win. There's something called hubris. And after America so successfully transformed Japan and Germany, and after the Cold War victory, which is the immediate antecedent to the Iraq invasion, and after America had brought democracy to all these places that seemed, you know, not hospitable to it. Uh, the idea that you could bring democracy to Iraq didn't seem far-fetched, which is an English word which sounds like Yiddish. It didn't sound, far, it didn't seem far-fetched. And they went ahead and they and they invaded it. But people forget when you enjoy these ins, and you witness these insane transformations of Japan, Germany, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, right? New countries like Poland and, che- and the Czech uh, and every and Hungary becoming democratic. You begin to think that these are universal ideas that everyone would want to embrace. And you begin to imagine that Iraqi soldiers and civilians will greet you with flowers and candy when you invade. So hubris is really, you know, something that people don't talk about enough when they talk about the American invasion of Iraq. But getting back to baseball, yes, we taught the Japanese baseball and now they beat us. Right. And and again, it, it, it is a wonderful thing, I believe. Uh, Israel, by the way, sent a team to the World Baseball Classic. I think they were soundly defeated. They were destroyed, absolutely destroyed. In the world I don't know. I think Puerto Rico beat them. But it's great to see Puerto Rico and, and Dominican. Well, baseball is inherently a Jewish game. I'll tell you why. The minimum number of people on the field to play a game is 10, right? One on offense, nine on defense. So you need a minion. Number two, it's a mixture of halacha and minhug because there are strict rules. But there's also local minhug, like the distance of the fences. Number three, it's just like baseball is like the Jewish people, right? When you're on defense, you're part of a team. When you're on offense, you're all alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and of course, it's also because the tachlis is to go home. Right. And I, oh, that was my number one point I should have made. Yes. Yes. yes All yes, purpose yes. is to go home. All purpose is to go home. Like George Carlin. on that. Yeah. Also, I think uh, as 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 rabbis, I think we can appreciate. Although you mentioned the time clock, the fact is it really doesn't have an end. Really, right. baseball does not have a, a zman. It's lamalam right. and azman, so to speak. Oh, also, some sports are are yachid, some are tzibor. Right, tennis, you're a yachid. Right, football, you're a tzibor. Basketball, right, golf, you're a yachid. And and baseball combines yachid and tzibor, just like. Judaism on offense you're alone and you think you're part of a team it's a very important it's a very Jewish game parents not wanting their kids to play football that might direct some more athletic talent to baseball maybe right although as Michael Jordan taught us to be great in baseball is really quite difficult is something you know you you could be you could have the the body of of, of a Jordan and have his skills in jumping and speed and still not be able to, to hit, so hit a 95 mile an hour fastball. It's the hardest thing to do in any sport is to hit a, hit a fastball yes. harder than anything. And, uh, and, 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 and as, as we say, it's quite, yeah. So I think, I think I'll, I will call this, 
little edition of our talks. By the way, baseball has a lot to do with Pesach. I mean, o- opening game was always very, very often, you know, around Cholamite. I remember as a kid going to Forbes Field, right, the precursor, you know, we're now two stadiums later in Pittsburgh, but in Forbes Field, sitting in, you know, in the left. Sitting in the bleachers while the wind was blowing in and eating your matzah and cream cheese. Exactly, exactly. Sitting and eating my matzah. And all the Jewish kids, you heard a crunch in the third inning, and everyone was eating their matzah. That's what baseball used to mean for me as a kid in Pittsburgh. Baseball and Pesach. Yeah, but again, as you say, the attention spans have... uh... Have, have, have altered, and the idea of going with your dad to a game is is is, is also changed. You know, the idea of actually people having people are so uh, busy. The idea to be able uh, to go uh, to take the afternoon off and spend the, the time in, in the bleachers. Was there anything better than going to a doubleheader on a on a on a on a June afternoon? On a you know, it was nothing better. Some stadiums, I think, even today, uh, there are uh, kosher vendors that I think are still. I think. Um, I took my grandchildren to a game in the New York Mets Stadium last year. Yes, I scarfed down several hot dogs. Yes, it's wonderful. In Camden Yards, I think so. It is the most non-Jewish thing I've ever done in my life, was eating a hot dog at a baseball game. And it felt wonderful. I got to tell you, your whole life, you just watched everybody else eat whatever they wanted. And to go get a kosher hot dog at a baseball game, I mean, that's the pinnacle of American Jewish success. Well, on that note, from Canada, we'll wish you you a wonderful Pesach season. We'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks from now, uh, well-rested and ready to tackle all the uh, issues of the day. Um, Take care. Be well, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 